All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Hopefully, uh, this morning finds you well. So we're we're back in Mark this morning. This time we're uh, looking at Mark chapter seven, the first twenty-three verses. So if you weren't here last week, um, you missed Bill's teaching at the end of chapter six, which contains some well-known, encouraging, uh, faith-building uh, scripture passages. Um, we see Jesus presented as the second Moses, bringing salvation to his people in a desolate place, literally the desert, uh, him proclaiming himself the bread of heaven, uh, corresponding to the manna from Moses' era. We even see the orderly grouping of, of people prior to being served the literal feast of bread and fish, again, corresponding to the Israelite camp of people in the wilderness. The provision of food by Jesus symbolized what it symbolized with Moses, God's saving grace in rescuing his people from bondage. And then later, after leaving the wilderness, Jesus instructed his disciples to take a boat to the other side of the sea while he dismissed the crowd and went up on a mountain to pray. And then later that night, while the disciples were on the boat, a storm rolled over the sea and the disciples were struggling with the boat in the storm for hours. They were cowering in the boat, probably delirious from the stress of the situation, as you can imagine. And they see Jesus there walking on the water, and they don't even recognize him. And, and why would they? You don't expect to someone walk up to your boat while you're in the middle of the, of the water, right? And during a storm. But yet there he was. He wasn't only observing them, their struggle, he, he entered the struggle and he, he conquered it for them. And when they got to the other side, they were immediately mobbed by people again. The text tells us that wherever Jesus went, people came to him and brought their sick to him for healing. And so we get a picture again of how Jesus' popularity has increased to the point that everyone recognizes him. And they flock to him in tremendous numbers. And so we pick it up in chapter 7, and again we'll be looking at the first 23 verses. So I'm going to read the text now. <clears throat> and when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God, in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, 
And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So the title I came up with this, um, for this, um, I've had several working titles. I seem to have a hard time with titles. Um, I was going to go with what Bill gave us in the teaching, cleanliness is not godliness, but that, that's almost sacrilegious to me, so I, I couldn't use that. So clean hands do not make clean hearts is kind of what I settled on the way here, uh, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so you may have noticed that this text is, is two different sections. Uh, the first part is Jesus' dealings with the Pharisees. And it seems hard to believe, but we haven't seen Jesus interact with Pharisees and scribes since chapter 3. So verses 1 through 13 give an account of this interaction. And it seems to take place in a, a public square of some sort where there's a lot of people around. And Mark doesn't give us an exact location, but we can assume it's probably Capernaum again, because in fir- verse 14... <clears throat> The scene shifts to Jesus addressing the people, specifically, and not the Pharisees, and later going into the house, which is probably Peter's house in Capernaum. And then verse 15 is the key verse of the whole passage. It sums up Jesus' argument that the Pharisees, with the Pharisees, and it's further explained in the remaining verses through verse 23, which we'll get to. So the theme that we want to look at, too, is the heart matters more than the hands, and I hope to make that point throughout this, this lesson. So let's look at the first part, the first uh, 13 verses, and then some quick housekeeping things to note. If you've been following this series for a while, which I think most of you have, have been here uh, over the last few months, you've probably recognized some key attributes of Mark's writing style. Uh, One of them is clearly displayed here. That is, there doesn't appear to be an obvious connection with the previous chapter. And I'll show that there is a connection, uh, hopefully, later in the teaching. But at first, it kind of seems disconnected. So the brief summary from last week's teaching ends with Jesus in Gennesaret, healing people in a marketplace. 
And the next thing we see here in verse 7, or chapter 7, is that the Pharisees are gathering around him. So there's kind of an abrupt jump there. So it's important to note a couple, a couple things. Um, the first is that Gennesaret is not too far from Capernaum. It's on the north side of the Galilean Sea. Uh, it's about two, two miles away from each other. It's the next town over to the west. And recall that Capernaum is kind of Jesus and his disciples' home base. The house that's mentioned is, is probably Peter's house still in verse 17. Uh, we see that back in chapter 1, again in chapter 2, where the paralytic is dropped through the roof. The point is, he's in Jewish territory once again, and the Pharisees are right there with him. And they brought the scribes with them this time. And they're watching every move. And in verse 1, we, we see where they came from. They came all the way from Jerusalem. And if you remember the map that I drew, the first lesson that I gave uh, several weeks ago, Jerusalem was south of the sea and even like another distance south of, of that, uh, the Galilean Sea. So it was about 100 miles away. That's like 1,000 miles for us. So this is, this is what they did in chapter 3. Um, they came from Jerusalem, and it's, it's, a, it's a huge deal for them to do that, right? It wasn't just down the road. It wasn't the next town over. It was 100 miles away. So think how commendable it would have been for these guys, the Pharisees and scribes, to have traveled 100 miles to offer support to Jesus, right. to learn from his teachings, to help and encourage him in his ministry. And we, of course, know that was exactly the opposite. They came to harass him, to question him, to try to trick him into saying things that would cause people to rise against him. And their only motivation was to shut him down because they saw him as a threat to their authority. That's all they cared about. And the following verses show this. There are two main points of conflict in this passage between Jesus and the Pharisees. And we want to spend some time with those. The first is uncleanness. And you'll hear me say uncleanness. It's hard for me not to say uncleanliness. My wife is probably cringing right now. But the, the point is that it's, it's clean versus unclean. It's not doesn't have anything to do really with the hygiene of something. It's, it's the state of something. And the second point of conflict is tradition, specifically of the elders, per the text. So let's start with uncleanness. And I want to warn you, there's a lot of info about uncleanness out there. And I've attempted to narrow it down, but it probably still feels like there's a lot of info here, but it's the first half of the passage, so it's there to serve a point. And the fact that Mark spends so much time explaining these details, such as unclean hands, points again to his original audience who he wrote the book of Mark for, the Roman Christians who were a lot of them Gentiles. Jews would already know everything there is to know about uncleanness, and it would require no explanation. But Mark gives a pretty detailed explanation here. And if we went all the way back to the Old Testament, we see the origin of cleanness and uncleanness in Exodus 30, in Exodus 40, in the Leviticus 22. It all started with the priests being required to wash before entering the tabernacle. 
regarding the washing of hands for non-priests, note, and this is the point that the Pharisees are contending here, if you weren't a priest, the only time you would be required to wash your hands is if you had touched a bodily discharge. And you can read all about this in Leviticus 15. I'm not sure I'd recommend that, but you can. <clears throat> so that's it. That's, that's where this, this concept of cleanliness or washing of hands all started. So how did that morph into what the Pharisees were now prescribing to Jesus' disciples, who were not priests? It's not really a surprise. We know how the human mind works because we're humans too, obviously. And as in the past, when Judaism became entwined with Gentile culture, ritual cleanness took on new significance as a way of maintaining Jewish purity. And not surprisingly, as we know everything we know so far about the Pharisees, they were in the most strict sect of Judaism with regard to matters of cleanness. There was a whole list of things that would make them unclean. Just a few. Spit, women after childbirth, corpses, decaying flesh of dead animals, creeping things, idols, certain classes of people such as lepers, Samaritans, and of course Gentiles. So this list clearly implicates Jesus and his disciples. They were just in the marketplace in Gennesaret healing sick people. Now, I have to admit, as I went through this list of unclean items, I'm thinking to myself, I, I, don't, I don't really have a problem with this, right? If I, if I touched a decaying animal, I'd wash my hands before I ate something, right? I mean, most of us would do that. But the practical effects related to hygiene were not really the primary concern here. And one of the commentators I read for this study uses a more modern example to draw a parallel with the Jewish way of thinking with regards to clean and unclean. It's like avoiding a person under suspicion or who has been recently fired so as to not endanger your own position. You stay away from that person because you don't want to be risk being associated with him. People might think you're under suspicion as well and you should be fired, right? You, you stay away. And that's kind of the, the idea that they're trying to make here. And again, there's a lot of info on this topic. Um, Matthew Henry's extensive detail in his biblical commentary uh, is something I'm going to go through here. And it really paints the picture of these washing practices of the Pharisees. This is just a brief flyover. So the Pharisees washed their hands often. They took pains in washing their hands with great care. Some washed their hands to their wrists. They lifted up their hands when they were wet so that the water might run down to their elbows so they now had clean elbows. They particularly washed before they ate bread, particularly when they recite a benediction such as, blessed be he that produced bread, they must wash their hands before and after or else they would thought to be, be defiled. They took special care to wash their hands when they came in from the marketplace, where Jesus' disciples were, of course, like I just mentioned. In the judgment halls, because it was likely that there would be heathen or Jews in these public places. And they might be under ceremonial pollution, and they themselves would be polluted by them. A common rule from rabbis was that if they washed their hands in the morning, 
the first thing they did, that was the first thing they did, it would serve all day. They wouldn't have to wash their hands all day. The rest of the day, provided they kept alone. But as soon as they came in contact with someone else or went outside, when they returned to either eat or pray, they still had to wash their hands. They added this to the washing of cups, pots, and vessels, which they suspected had been used by heathens or polluted people, as well as the tables and benches from which they ate. So you don't want to take any risks with anything. So you can see how a huge legalistic complex would develop over this matter of, of ritual, almost cultic purity. And they were as serious as can be. It wasn't taken lightly at all. There were two extreme examples I, I came across in the, the study as I was preparing for this. One was that a rabbi was, who was um, once omitted washing his hands before eating bread was excommunicated. He was thrown out of the, te the temple. Another, and this, this really illustrates the thinking of, of, of the Pharisees, another rabbi who was imprisoned by the Romans nearly died because he used his ration of drinking water to wash his hands. So this poor guy, it was better to be ritually clean than to be alive. The key fact here is that there were cases in the law of Moses that washings were appointed for, but the Pharisees added to them, enforced them as if they were ordained by God as well. So eventually the scriptural rituals of purity became so discombobulated that the concept of true inner purity had been trivialized to a system of external washings. It was by this and similar things that they gained a reputation of sanctity among the people and so they had to keep it up. They couldn't stop doing this. And it just, it just snowballed into this, this legalistic complex. And it was a large part of how they defined themselves, of how they defined their authority. And they put off this, you can imagine, obnoxious piety of the highest form. Nobody wanted to be around these people, right? You can just, you can just imagine. And there was clearly a divide here between clean and unclean but this was only a symptom of a deeper contention, which brings us to our, our second point of conflict, that is tradition, particularly the oral tradition of the elders, as it says in verse 5. So the reason why there were all these additions to the authoritative law of Moses was because the Pharisees accepted the ever-changing oral law as equally authoritative. And this oral law was the justification that could be used to sustain the accusation against the disciples and Jesus of eating with unclean hands. We see Jesus' almost sarcastic remark in verses 6 and 7 where he calls them hypocrites and quotes Isaiah. He says, the, the, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is from Isaiah 29, verse 13, and it's basically leaning into the fact that the Pharisees are indeed hypocrites and providing the documentation. Speaking and acting as these holy, perfect, hand-washing, law-following men, when in fact the intentions of their hearts are pure evil. Their rules, their standards come from them, 
And they are not of God. They have replaced the divine with the human. And one point to note here, and I think this is fairly obvious, but it still bears mentioning, the fact that they were hypocrites does not make them superficial or uncommitted to their cause. They were, as you can tell, 100% committed. A guy in prison used his ration of water to wash his hands rather than drinking it to nourish him. The contrast to Jesus' equal commitment to recovering the intent of the written law made their differences so very, very earnest. This is why they traveled a hundred miles through the desert to, to critique this guy, Jesus. And he was hitting back at them hard. We see this. And he says it clearly, your tradition of the elders is declared your own tradition. In contrast to the revealed commandments of God, in verses 8 and 9, or word of God, referenced in verse 13. Do you see this? They, they have completely put aside the word of God and the commandments of God, and were following their own word, their own commandments. And it's, it's easy to get lost in this fact. Even as I was studying this, I, I had to constantly remind myself that they weren't just setting aside the commandments of God. No, they flat out rejected them. They made conscious choices against them by coming up with their own laws. And when you boil it down, it's really no different than the Israelites rejecting God at the base of Mount Sinai, right? They build their own God to worship, the golden calf. This is, this is human depravity. It's sprinkled through the entirety of the scriptures. We see it over and over again. So in verses 10 through 13... Jesus delivers another example of the Pharisees' hypocrisy when he brings up this idea of, of Corban. Does anyone know what Corban is? Has anyone heard that term before? So I did not know what Corban was. I, I actually was confused by this section when I, I read this a few weeks ago. And I've read Mark before, um, but it must have been one of those things that my simple brain just didn't pick up the first few times. Uh, so this is a good reminder to read and study the Bible uh, regularly. You never know what, what gets to reveal to you each time. But Corbin is an example of an oral tradition gone awry, another example. And Jesus sets this up as a concrete example of this depravity. He references the fifth commandment. What is the fifth commandment? It's to honor your father and your mother. Corbin is from the Hebrew word for offering. And this was a custom derived from the practice of devoting specific goods to the Lord. And this is specified in Leviticus 20, 27. It talks, it talks about this. Every Jew understood the fifth commandment, to honor one's father and mother, included taking care of them as they aged. But tradition offered a way to get around it. You could simply say that certain possessions, or in some cases all of your possessions, were Corban, meaning given to God. A person could dedicate goods to God and withdraw them from ordinary use, although retaining control over them. I also read that the Corban vow had to be kept, even if it was spoken in a fit of anger for whatever reason, because of tradition, you still vowed that to God, and it was more important than keeping the fifth commandment, or any commandment for that matter. 
So again, we see tradition trumping the commandments of God and the word of God in the mind of the Pharisees. And Jesus calls them out on this. And, and this is revealing of the human heart, isn't it? Twisting God's word by people who proclaim it as holy, people who justify themselves by the law and un- end up modifying it in order to escape its authority. And we see these things revealed in human history over and over and over again. I dare to say that there are sects of false or liberal Christianity built on this way of thinking. There are entire religions built on this way of thinking. And some are very, very popular. And the Pharisees were pretty far down that road. They placed oral tradition above the commandments from God. And in this particular example... It flat out reverses the commandment by forbidding a son to do anything for his father or mother, as stated in verse 12, even in severe times of need in their old age. And this is just one example of tradition that the Pharisees were promoting at this time. It wasn't something done in their past that they're ashamed of and don't practice anymore. No, Jesus inferred that it was happening now, in the present, And he says at the end of verse 13 that this is just one of many such things that you do. So it wasn't a bad apple in a barrel of good apples. It was a bad apple in a barrel of bad apples. It was just one tradition that had been handed down, practiced, promoted, and encouraged to work against the commandments of God, to reject the commandments of God. And I think Mark's placement of this passage right after the events of chapter 6 are are purposeful, as I alluded to earlier. God's commandments are there to help people. Jesus was there to help people. He was teaching them first of all, but he was also healing and feeding them as well. And these traditions that the Pharisees were promoting, that they had actually come up with, were actually hurting people. People not able to help their parents because of traditional practices, even if they were suffering or starving? No, everything the Pharisees did was about them, maintaining their power, preserving their authority. And you can just feel their anger toward Jesus in this passage, and we continue to see it escalating through the book of Mark. This carpenter from Nazareth wasn't going to take anything away from them. And verse 14 is a, a turning point in this passage. Up until now, it's been Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes. But here, in verse 14, we're reminded that there were people around watching all this action. And Jesus called them to gather around. They probably maybe got away a little bit as things were heating up, but he was calling them to him. He had something important to say that he wanted them to hear. And when we see that in verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Again, some of the commentators that I I looked at for this, this teaching refer to this verse as perhaps the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. It's difficult for us to see this because we have the convenience of having the entire New Testament revealed to us. But for the Jews of the day, This was an incredible statement. We must assume that Peter heard Jesus say these words with his own ears 
And yet we know that he still struggled with thinking that he could be defiled by what he ate. God had to remind him, if you remember, of the, of the truth in Joppa when he gave him a vision of the animals coming down the sheet and God telling him to eat of those animals. And he had to do that three times. This is in Acts 10. This idea of all animals being okay to eat was not a natural way for a Hebrew mind to think. And we see that in verse 17, when Jesus and the disciples go in the house, again, probably Peter's house, and they ask him, what's the deal with this parable? Do you mind explaining this to us? I mean, did you get that when I was reading this? this they aren't taking what Jesus is saying as literal. They're thinking it's a parable. Jesus has given parables in the past, right? So it's not really a stretch. But they think it has to stand for something. There's, there's a meaning here that we don't understand. I mean, you're saying we can eat everything. That doesn't make sense, Jesus. But he sets them straight in the following verses. And he explains in detail what's going on. And some of the attributes, again, that we've seen previously in Mark. Jesus is emphasizing that faith and understanding result from hearing. And then note the location has changed again. They're now in Peter's house. They're not out with the crowds. They're alone, Jesus and his disciples, which is where Mark commonly places moments of divine revelation. We've seen this before in, in these lessons. A note from the parable passage from a few weeks ago that the disciples are still, quote, impervious to the truth. They're kind of like our dog, right? When you point at something, he, he looks at your finger. He doesn't look at what you're pointing at. He has no understanding of that until you say, you know, squirrel, then he, he knows where he, he needs to look. But the understanding that Jesus is looking for comes from the heart, not physical sight or even mental awareness. And we see this in verse 6 in the Isaiah quotation, quote, their heart is far from me. And again in verse 19, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach. Everything entering the stomach is expelled from the stomach. It all ends up in the same place. It's, it's a crass point, but it needs to be made. We just spent the last 30 minutes or so talking about how the Pharisees were, were basically living their lives and defining their existence, maintaining their authority by what they put in their bodies. And Jesus lays that all to waste. No pun intended. And we see Mark sort of entering the stage of this passage at the end of, of verse 19, where we see in parentheses in my Bible, thus he declared all foods clean. And this is only the second time we, we see this sort of editorial insertion from Mark. Uh, in Mark, <clears throat> the first time was in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 30, where we see Mark mention what the crowd was saying about Jesus when he was teaching, where he says he has an unclean spirit. That's what the crowd was saying. He, he mentions that. So this is a, a rare occurrence, and so we need to pay close attention to this. Again, note the original audience, the Roman Christians. I read that new Christian converts at that time had a lot of concerns and questions about dietary regulations, as, as you would expect. And again, as mentioned in, in previous lessons, the, the teaching of Jesus is supremely authoritative, superseding even the Torah. Similar to what we saw in, in chapter 2, uh, 27 through 28, where Jesus declares himself Lord even of the Sabbath, if you remember that. 
This statement is presuming to render a definitive judgment on a matter of divine revelation, that Jesus assumes the role of God, and he can, therefore, declare that all foods are clean. So if all foods are clean, what do we need to be concerned with? Well, Jesus, Jesus lists these evils of the heart. And James Edwards, in one of the commentaries I looked at, notes that this list shows a definite pattern in Greek. The first six terms occur in the plural, denoting evil acts. Sexual immorality is the first one listed, which defers, refers to various illicit sexual practices in Greek literature, such as adultery, fornication, prostitution, homosexuality. These are also found in the Old Testament. Other terms used are theft, murder, uh, and coveting. The final term is wickedness. And this is less specific, right, than the previous terms, but just in case there was any doubt of what you were doing, you've got wickedness here to kind of cover all the bases. The last six terms occur in the singular, which denote evil attitudes. So the first were evil acts. Now we're talking about evil attitudes. And they include deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Of course, the common denominator here with all 12 of these terms is they are all lodged in the evil thoughts of the heart. This illustrates the main theme again of this passage in verse 15. That is, real defilement is what comes from the heart. In verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And this again restates the theme of this passage and identifies the commandment of God from verse 8 and the word of God from verse 13 with the essential matters of the heart. And it is precisely the heart that the tradition of the elders fails to address. And because of this, it fails to represent either the commandment or the will of God. So Mark's main task here is to clarify the essential purpose of the Torah, which is the foundation of morality as we know. And it's a matter of inward purity, motive, and intent rather than the external compliance to ritual and custom, such as washing your hands. Uncleanness can no longer be considered a property of objects, but rather a description of inner attitudes, a condition, if you will, of the heart. The goodness of a deed depends not solely on doing it, but primarily on its intent, right? We, we know this truth. The approach of the Pharisees stripped the law of its intended purpose and resulted in attempts to establish human substitutes for divine judgment and grace. And we see this, again, in religious establishments today, right? Some of them are downright brutal. Followers prescribing to a legalistic list of things they need to do to be in good standing with God. It's never-ending, You can really never succeed. It causes unnecessary suffering and pain, sometimes to the point of death. And it's all in vain, which is the saddest part of of the the whole thing, right? Paul writes in Romans 10.3, 
for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. But Jesus, on the other hand, and not the traditions of men, is able to declare what is pleasing to God. And Mark profiles Jesus as the one who, in contrast to the oral tradition, is the true revealer of God. For only Jesus can produce the inner transformation that the law requires but cannot effect. And just like the thousands of hungry people in the wilderness and the disciples in the storm that we saw last week, Jesus is there to help. In this case, he's there to rescue us from the bondage of legalistic traditions of men. So ask yourself, and this is something I ask myself, are you struggling with any items on the sin list in verses 21 and 22? That's a pretty comprehensive list. We never think of these types of things applying to us, though, right? And we probably don't see ourselves as legalistic as the Pharisees either. But the attraction of legalism in Christianity or any religion is, of course, the fact that we think we have control over our own destiny. If I do this, I get this. And it's very subtle. But it's all in vain, again. And our best effort at righteousness is a filthy rag to God, as the scriptures say. We need Christ in our hearts. So I urge you to think, pray about these things, that God would reveal what's in your heart to you, and that you would put your trust in Christ. He's the only hope we have.